This podcast came to be because I want to reignite discussions about Pan-Africanism. And the purpose is to plant seeds of unity and inspiration among Africans, both at home and in the diaspora. I believe we have come to the stage where our continent is more vulnerable than ever. And it's up to us to decide our fate moving forward. What we will come to realize, I hope, is that we're so much more alike than we're different. And this show is just a small contribution to the public discourse that is going on in Africa right now. My name is Soshima Iro, and this is the Pan-African Experience. Dr. Molefi Asante, Dr. Seth Marco, Dr. Eddie Wiffer, Professor Sherry Thompson, Professor Rachel Robinson, Dr. Dick Bruder, Mr. Pegan Mustafa, welcome to the Pan-African Experience. Okay, so I am fully on board with the concept of United States of Africa, but there are fundamental challenges to this goal. Uh, you know, how yes. do we address the issue of language and other remnants of uh, colonial structure? You know, for example, you know, I learn about Pan-Africanism and Afrocentricity from people like you. And I went through primary school in Nigeria, secondary school in Nigeria, and part of my university in Nigeria. And this was never taught in, in the school. It was never in the curriculum. So there are a lot of uh, structural issues, you know. So how do we address these challenges? Moving well, you, you, yeah, you, you are you are very right, and you and you you pointed out a big problem. And one of the ways that we have to do that is that we've got to have national will. But that's why I'm saying that it has to be broadly in the masses, uh, because the top leadership, uh, it seems to me, don't have the will to do it except in some instances now. I mean, I'm seeing some good things. I mean, as I and I believe this. I saw in, uh, I think Obasanjo, for example, believed it at the time, but I don't know. I mean, uh, he never brought it to bear even in, in Nigeria. And, and I think the masses have to be taught. It, take, for example, um, uh, what is going on now in uh, Liberia. In Liberia, they have now decided that every uh, school, that the schools should teach um, Pan-Africanism. And not only Pan-Africanism, but, the, but uh, they should have departments of diaspora studies. The African studies that will connect African people to other African people. And, and, and this has to be done everywhere because we have in the United States departments of African-American studies, but we also need these departments of African-American studies in the United States to become Pan-African because we have populations uh, in Brazil. A uh, hundred million black people live in Brazil. We have, we have populations in Colombia. 30% of the population of Colombia in South America is African. And these people, uh, we, have, we don't talk much about them. And we have to, we have to bring them into the fold. We have to bring the people in Venezuela and Ecuador and Peru um, into the African, they're Africans. You got, you got Afro-Iraqi people living in Basra, been there for a thousand years. We got to bring those people into the fold. There's a large African diaspora. The Miss Universe from Iceland a year or two ago was an African. Bring her into the fold. There are many, many people, you see? So we have a vast world population that has been separated, segregated, uh, factionalized, 
uh, ethnicize. And so we've got to bring, we have to have a big tent. And the big tent cannot be based on religion. It has to be based on just small principles. We believe in the United uh, 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 States of Africa. We believe Africa should be one continental uh, country. And we believe that all Africans uh, should be uh, able to go and live anywhere on the continent they want to. Uh, and we also believe that uh, uh, we should protect the minority rights of all African people. And then, of course, all the other things will come into place. We already have a, there are, there's already an African parliament, for example. There's a, I mean, the, 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 the AU has already established the African parliament. We already have um, uh, ideas about language. The, the language, we, they have five languages now. Five languages that are official languages of the continent. Kiswahili, uh, English, French, uh, uh, Portuguese, and, um, and Arabic. I mean, those are, those are the, and you can have a country with four or five languages. I mean, India has more than four or five. Um, you know, I mean, uh, uh, in, this, in, in Russia, uh, right now they only have one, but before when it was Soviet Union, they had several uh, major languages. Ukrainian was a language, you see. Uh, uh, they, they had, um, so, so, so these things are possible <laughs> I have a lot of issues with NGOs because, you know, for example, you know, uh, during the Black Lives Matter um, protest and things like that, I wrote uh, an article about, you know, NGOs and, uh, you know, BBC here have uh, BBC Children in Need and it's like a telethon where they raise money, they raise like 60 million pounds, mostly 100 million pounds. And half of the broadcast is, you know, uh, pe people in Africa, you know, sending someone to say, oh, this kid has been sleeping without a mosquito uh, net, you know. And each year, they will send someone to go and send mosquito nets. Each year. So there's not really like an uptake. So it becomes a spectacle right. as far as I'm concerned. And right, each, year, right. each year, they will put oil, put water. And the water they are putting from this 60 million pounds raised is the mechanical water where you push right. and not even a borehole right. that can disseminate water across right. community. Just, right. uh, you mm -hmm. know, so it becomes uh, right. redundant. I don't right. want to be ungrateful. I'm sure it benefits the people within mm -hmm. that community. But when you look at it critically, you say, if you really want to help, you know, what I wrote in the article is that if NGOs really want to help, what I really want is not really baked beans. You know, I don't want your baked beans. I want lobbying, active lobbying to, right. you know, uh, balance uh, trade deals, you know, mm -hmm. most of, uh, a lot of things, toothpick gets imported in Nigeria. We import toothpick right. now. Right. Can you imagine? Right. So, and right. what we right. export is like 2%, 2.4%. Right. You know, so right. so I want NGOs to start lobbying in terms of economic, uh, uh, you know, opportunity for these African countries, you know, right. to level playing field and not... Big beans and mosquito nets. Right. You know, that right. is good as well, but the bigger issue that is it will make substantial uh, difference in people's life that will empower mm -hmm. them. You know, you want to empower right. people. You don't want to feed them right. big beans from a spoon. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. Teach a man to fish, you know, eat for a day. Right. Uh, uh, you know, give a man a fish, you know, eat for a day. Teach him how to fish, you know, eat forever. The NGO is giving man a fish, so they have to keep coming back for the fish, but not giving them the fishing rod and the tools where they wouldn't have to be reliant on 
the NGO. Their model should be, we want to go in and build capacity amongst the people and the technical skills and the training that we can leave <laughs> and we and the people are empowered to build, right? That's the way I look at it. But no, they want to keep giving the fish and not teaching African people how to fish. I, 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 it's bizarre. You could do a whole comedy set about yeah. it, you know, giving giving kids, you know, laptops without in the rural villages without internet connection. Like, what is the point? You know, like, you know, these things like where there's just like, are you thinking uh, they're not thinking about the root of the problem and they're getting at something else. So, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a long list. Yeah. And I think people are starting to question it more and more, at least in the last 10 years, because the movements that you're seeing, the pro-democracy movements that are emerging are being generated from these NGOs. Right. They're coming outside of and then they're following along. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's not that they're initiating it. They're the ones that are like, yeah, oh, wow, these people are actually going out into the streets and yeah. trying to do stuff. Before before I move on, uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, obviously, I believe there's a three-pronged approach to this. Of course, we have to hold our leaders accountable. You know, I, I can't put all the blame on NGOs. You know, if they see a business model there, they can make money. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's a business. You know, the yeah. CEO gets paid, they, they get revenues. So I don't really blame them entirely. You know, we have to hold our leaders accountable. We have to make sure we educate, you know, the young people, the youth, you know, to empower them. You know, knowledge is power. To empower them to hold people accountable because most times you see videos coming out from most African countries, especially Nigeria, where during election time, there will be queue and the politicians will be giving like people like, you know, 5,000 naira, a bag of rice. You know, and I used to be angry about that, but in hindsight, you know, I can understand if someone, if that's the only way someone can eat at that time, you know, I, I can understand why they will take it. You know, so that's part of the education to mm -hmm. get to make that sacrifice. You know, you talk about material taking or Malcolm X, like, right. there are people that can make sacrifices, you know, yeah. for overall good, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. And the education yeah. is big. You know, I think, you know, there, you know, we have to rebuild up African uh, institutions of higher learning, you know, um, that, you know, we can't just keep relying. And, you know, you've heard the term brain drain, right? Yes. The African brain drain, right? Africa's best and brightest are all getting their education and their professional careers outside of Africa, yes. you know, uh, and that's a shame, right? Um, thinking about all of that intellectual social capital in the diaspora right now, if that was on the continent, you know? Um, so yeah, education, I, I 100% agree with you on that one. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you know, one of the courses that you teach is uh, petroleum resource governance. And uh, like every layman in Africa, including me, you know, the question we always ask is, you know, for example, in Nigeria, we have oil and gas, we have these resources. How come we don't have, you know, uh, there's always no petrol in the pumps, you know, people are queuing all the time, there's black market for petrol, and the, the country is uh, not really benefiting from these resources. I don't want to say Nigeria is poor, but I don't think it's living up to the potential, full potential of, you know, getting access to these resources. What can we attribute this to? I mean, I mean, there, there are a number of factors. So, so first, you're dealing with uh, um, a supposedly mature oil and gas jurisdiction. And I'd like to distinguish a country like Nigeria that is, um, you know, 
supposedly mature, I would say, Nigeria, Libya, um, some of these countries um, fall into that category. They've been exploring for oil since, say, 1960s, right? Um, and so they should have a significant amount of experience. I like to distinguish that sort of country from a country like Mozambique, Tanzania, and even Ghana, Uganda, some of these new entrants. There's there's the need to draw the distinction because um, on one hand, a country like Nigeria is dealing with fundamental um, structural governance issues as well as indeed regulatory. Um, from a regulatory standpoint, you would understand that it wasn't until 2021, just a, a month or two ago, that the entire petroleum industry um, regulatory regime was overhauled. And this is a country that started um, oil exploration in commercial quantity as way back was, uh, I think, 1960. Actually, 1958, um, you know, that, that the first commercial lift was, was done. And it's in 2021, right? that it's then overhauling its its regulatory infrastructure and so you begin to ask yourself what did it do for the last six seven decades what was what was wrong that's from a regulatory standpoint so we saw that within the regulation itself um there was issue, there were issues of for instance conflict of interest there was a there wasn't a clear um strategy in terms of maximizing the economic recovery from oil and then on a strong structural level you then had those issues of you know corruption um, um mismanagement of resources and neck deep lack of um energy strategic planning so there wasn't you know a clear vision as to this is the resource this is where we want to get to at xyz um, yeah, and, and so there was that lack of vision, lack of strategic planning. Um, in, indeed, uh, corruption played a significant role, um, and there was this sort of elitist um, ideology to, you know, utilizing or, or, or mismanaging the resource. Um, I would say, and so you you distinguish that from a country like Uganda, and I've just published um, a book chapter with with uh, um, a colleague, looking at how to predict. Um, some of the issues you've, you've identified. I want to talk about black beauty culture in general. Yep. I know your book uh, is with regards to Canada's uh, black beauty culture, you know, the roots, you were tracing the roots. And uh, I'm on a mission to encourage black women to stop uh, straightening their hair, relaxing their hair, or wearing uh, the weave. And I've been warned that this is a very dangerous mission. <laughs> so... <laughs> Because the, so many elements, please, can you, uh, yeah, can you elaborate on that? Well, because that too is about consciousness. <laughs> I mean, everything is about your consciousness and your awareness and your ability to ask yourself, especially as it relates to beauty culture, um, to ask yourself, is this in my best interest in terms of my personhood? not in terms of dating, career, relationship, money, power, like all the, the stuff, the outward stuff that I could understand. So for example, there's a lot of women who wear a wig because they work in a certain place and they know that that's more acceptable because it's gonna, you know, it's just more acceptable. There's a lot of women who same thing, they wear weave because the standard of beauty says your hair better be long and straight and silky. And they know that that's gonna give them a sort of an advantage in many areas, especially in relationships. Let's face it, a lot of women's hair choices, I don't know if you want to hear this, but they really are driven by men's interests. Men 
tend to like women who have long straight hair or at least straightened hair. That is a preference in heterosexual relationships that I have noticed and had to push back against in my entire life. For a lot of women, they acquiesce to that. And so they wanna please and be seen as beautiful. <clears throat> so there are a lot of constraints, right? And reasons. But when you scrape the surface of all those reasons that actually, as you get older, they're more justifications <laughs> than actual reasons. You have to ask yourself, is this in my best interest as a person? Is it in my best interest in terms of how I see myself, in terms of how I honor myself, in terms of health and all the other things? And of course, that's a very tricky conversation to have with someone whose consciousness is not there yet, right? Because mm. self-care actually takes a lot of, you have to awaken. I don't want to get too deep. I feel like, you know, I'm getting a little bit. Please, like, please, please, please it, go ahead. Because, someone needs to hear this. Yeah, because some of this is a spiritual journey. And spiritual is not the same thing as religion, right? Because a lot of people who go to church, they weave in and relax and wear the wig. It has nothing to do with religion. I'm talking about a certain journey that we all have to take in life to figure out who we are and, and why we do the things that we do. And if you are able to live with yourself wearing a weave, knowing you're doing this because you want to keep a husband or you want to keep a man or you want to keep the job, if you're okay with that, then I come from the school of thought that I can't judge that person and, and tell them not to do that. Like, I can't tell you, okay, you're wrong. But what I can tell you is that over here, there's another way. <laughs> and oh, that yeah. other way isn't, that other way sort of, um, has nothing to do with outward, um, the external is what I'm saying to you. It has everything to do yeah. with the internal. I was wondering, you said that uh, men like uh, straight hair. I, I was thinking that that's probably not the case for most people. I know. Is that like factually speaking? I mean, I think, I think. Because yeah, most things, most things that women do, obviously, this is coming from anecdote, right? Most things that women do, they they think they're doing it for men, and men like that. But men, primarily speaking, are not really interested in you know all the whatever the spectacle, the extras that comes yeah. with it. I mean, I think what I've learned is that men like you to just be real. <laughs> like, I don't think men typically like weaves. Like, I don't think that, they, like, I just don't think that is something that men necessarily like. But if they're going to step out to some really posh, posh event, and there's a lot of white people in there, I bet you they like the weave then. They probably don't mind it in that case. But behind closed doors, maybe not so much. I think, yes, I think, it's not to say that this is driven by men saying things overtly to women. I do think a lot of this is our perception of what men would find attractive, right? It's on us. It's like what we are thinking because we're in a world, just like you, just like the CRT conversation, just like we're in a, a world dominated by white images. We're also in a world dominated by white aesthetics, straightened hair, um, thin nose, like all the stuff that you see and it, but the weird thing in popular culture, increasingly you're seeing a lot of black women body parts 
right? Walking down the runway and you're like, okay, her lips look a lot bigger than they did last year, right? So everybody likes our parts. And I'm thinking of Kim Kardashian elk. They love the aesthetics of blackness. I don't know how they would want to be in black skin though. Like, I don't know if they want to absorb that, but they'll take the lips, they'll take the parts that they find attractive. Our fuller lips, our fuller derriere. Um, maybe they like the idea of some of them really like the, our hair is always black typically. So they like really dye their hair like a, like Kim Kardashian's hair is like midnight black. <laughs> it's like, right. And I think, so there's things that they like, but the other stuff, they just leave that. I don't think Kim Kardashian's going to widen her nose anytime soon. Last year, a court a judge in Nigeria threw out a case of 47 men that was arrested in a hotel. I don't know if you're aware of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, they say they're doing, uh, and I quote, a gay initiation, end quote. So obviously the men said they were having a birthday party and then, but the case anyway was later dismissed uh, for because the prosecutors did not provide evidence, uh, witnesses to the court. Right. So this, is this some of the scenarios that it feels like the homophobia that people are experiencing are mostly from the state or the institution and not necessarily from uh, the public, so to speak? You know, that's a good question. Um, the, the Initiative for Equal Rights is one of the main Nigerian LGBT organizations, and they do an assessment of human rights violations that are reported to them every year. And um, it's a majority of them are perpetrated by the state, if I'm remembering the numbers exactly right, or representatives of the state, so the police and uh, that type of thing. But a large number are perpetrated by members, members of the public. Um, and that takes, that takes two forms. One form is blackmail and extortion. So, and this is one of the painful ironies so for sexual and gender minority populations who are already subject to stigma and discrimination, uh, it makes it hard to meet other people from those populations. Uh, certainly for romantic partners, but even if you just want friendship and support and, and those types of things. So a lot of people use online platforms, which are wonderful because you know they cut across geography, they can be reached at different times of day. Uh, but it means that people who are looking to uh, basically to prey on um, sexual and gender minorities can go to those sites and, you know, put, put in a, a fake message, say, come meet me at this hotel or meet me at this restaurant. And then when the community member arrives there, you know, they'll be said, well, you know, I, you pay me money now or I'm going to tell your family that you're gay or I'm going to tell, I'm going to call the police or something like that. So in a, um, a survey of uh, men who have sex with men and transgender women from Nigeria, I think about a quarter of the people surveyed had experienced blackmail or extortion in some in some form. So it's very, very high rates. I was wondering if, you know, Jews of Africa are of common ancestry. Up to now, no research allows to establish a single origin for the various African people claiming a Jewish ancestry. However, some researchers are, are looking into the question. Um, it's not possible to, to go into details, but I can tell you that um, there are some recent Western hypotheses supported by a professor of African history 
at the University of Beirut in Germany. His name is Dirk Lange. Uh, Lange suggests that in earliest times, the Canaanite society was most likely established in West Africa through the agency of Phoenician officials and traders from North Africa. Lange tries to explain that the historical tradition of the Central Sudan contained clear evidence of Canaanite Israelite influence, influences. Um, he suggests that the existence of early Trans-Saharan contacts reach back to the pre-Roman period and he supports is a suggestion by written records, oral tradition, and cult dramatic performances. But it's difficult to say more in the current state of research. I think about last year or last two years, I can't remember, but COVID is making everyone lose track of time. There's a, a, a TV presenter in America called Nick Cannon. I'm not sure if you've mm. heard of him. No. Okay, no, so he I don't I, I would like to know who he is. Okay, <laughs> he 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 used to present uh, America Got Talent, America Got Talent like a TV show, but he also hosts a podcast where he talked about semitism and he said that uh he said something that got him in trouble, you know. Can you can see hear me okay? Mm. Okay, he said something that got him into trouble that you know, he lost a lot of jobs and he said that uh, the the original Semitic people are, are Africans, are black people, and that was considered um, anti-Semitic. And then he lost he lost his job and things like that. But so I'm thinking logically, if 600 to 700 years ago, if the human race as we know it existed only in Africa, about 700. Um, 700,000 years ago, 700 years ago, you know, mm -hmm. 700,000. So mm -hmm. if, if we existed only in Africa, so it makes sense to, to mm -hmm. say that the origin, origin mm -hmm. of everything comes from there. Yeah, it's, it's a camp. You know what I mean by a camp? It's a camp. No. Position. Okay. A camp. I mean, it's, um, um, there are, in the Afrocentric um, um, suit, there is the, the the claim that the the Jews, the white Jews, are imposters. That the real Jews are the blacks. And there are some trends um, who um, follow this um, this idea. Okay. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't personally. I wouldn't say that the 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 Jewish people in Israel are imposters. That's not. That wouldn't be a right thing to say. But if 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 logically, humans as we know it originates from Africa. Yeah, yeah. Biolo bi bi biologically. Biologically. It's absolutely, uh, and uh, it's proved. Yes. Now. Yes. So so. It's been proved. So the, the, the Jewish people in Israel will be referred to as the descendants 
of the Jewish people in Africa and not vice or not the other way around not uh, not on the other on the other way difficult to make it admitted by them okay so um the you talked about how islam or quran can give someone a uh, structure or value because even if the person is a good person if they read the quran or you know it will give them some level of guidance or calibration in their life to help you know better them and that baffles me when I hear about Sharia law in okay. Islam, you know, and this is something that has been bugging me. I'm saying, you know, because for me as a non-Muslim, what I see is that are you really fighting for your God? You know, your God is supposed to be omnipotent, powerful God. Why can't the God choose to uh, dispense punishment if he or she so chooses, but why do you <laughs> fight? Because whenever I hear Sharia law, I hear, you know, hanging people, chopping off people's hand, you know, especially in the north of Nigeria. Can you talk about what's your views on, on Sharia law? In the Quran, there is no Sharia law, but uh, in tradition, there is Sharia law. Okay. okay. And these are the ones which are uh, used by the priests to give, hand out the punishments that uh, we're talking about earlier for adultery, for theft, for, you know, uh, other things like that as well okay uh, like the hand chopping and see can i can i just make another point about this about the hand chopping as well uh, there is no hand chopping in the quran what the quran is talking about is a is a metaphor uh when it says that uh, uh, uh it's just like if uh, if i said asked you to do something you say oh no no i'm tied today i can't do this that doesn't mean to say that somebody's bound you in a chair and you can't move it just means that you're not able to do it because you've got other things to do so the uh, in the Quran, it's about the uh, severing, not severing of the hand, but the uh, cutting of the resources of a person so that they don't have the ability to commit any crime. That's what it means. Wow. Not the chopping of the hand. That's been changed by the Hadith into the chopping of the hands, not uh, according to the Quran. So this is like the, the interpretation is very literal instead of the exactly. you know, going yeah. deeper. <laughs> Exactly. They've literally interpreted instead of the metaphor it uses. It's okay. about saying that, uh, you know, cut off the resources of this person. If a person is stealing, cut off their resources so they cannot do uh, such harm. 